Welcome to Coming Along Nicely. We're two brothers, Rich and Tim, who recently went back to school. Every week, we're discussing one thing we're learning in our classes, and we want to invite you to come along with us. Before I spiral into anything uh, you'd like to ask or add, that's like a cue to your mind, like, oh, something's happening. In the distress phase, the client is just spinning. They don't don't have that filter. They don't have a process. This is the way I do it, and to be me, I need to keep executing on this thing. It's like they're using dingbats. Goblin mode. So last week... We talked or I, I talked for my part about deconstruction and I felt like I, I was very unsatisfied with how I left that. But oh, we were talking. I think we talked for long enough. I don't know. I, I didn't feel like I explained things super well. And then listeners heard <laughs> we had an interruption at Rich's place. And then mm. here I. I don't know. I wasn't watching the time or whatever, but as we were wrapping up, I have a Zoom class that was going on. And so I was trying for the show to like wrap it up and be like, you know, not too abrupt, but also at the same time, I was like, I'm late to class. So anyway, I was I was thinking so for those people listening to two episodes back to back. This is a nice continuation of that thought. Uh not so fast because <laughs> that's what I was going to say is like, oh. I, I was going to bring more and kind of try to, to clarify on certain things, but I don't really know how much I like the other things I wanted to say about deconstruction were just kind of about Derrida, like as a person. And so I don't want to make this the episode where I'm like, I don't know, just, uh, I guess, criticizing somebody on a personal basis. So all of this long preamble is, is to say, once I do more research, I'm going to bring some more on that subject. But for this week, I want to go in a different direction. I think it was, it was a last minute change right. up, but so yeah, this week, what we're looking at in my writing class has to do it's really an extension of what I talked about a couple weeks ago. I don't know when it was when I talked about it and their non-referential it. That might have been two uh, weeks ago. Yes. Yep. So I think it was two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Just as I guess we might end up with the thing where I'm doing like every other week on these opposite topics instead of sticking with one topic for a couple weeks at a time. That's all good. So when it when it comes down to it, kind of as like a refresher, I guess, or not a, a refresher, but what we were talking about with it and there speaks to controlling your sentences. Because when you use it and there non-referentially, those are generally those are taking up the subject position of your sentence. And sentences are really made up of subjects and verbs. Like there's all kinds of words in a sentence. We've got adjectives, we've got adverbs, we've got prepositions, all these sorts of things. And when you're in school, you learn like the the parts of speech in, I don't know, elementary school or middle school or something. But really, it's it's your subject and your verb. That's what matters. And to the point that if you 
take a piece of writing. I'm kind of just maybe I'm saying this and this isn't true, but this is my opinion. Like if, if you take a, a portion of writing, you cut out everything, but just leave like the sentence subject and leave the sentence verb. Just cross everything out. You're still going to kind of get a point across. Like it'll sound like Kevin in the office, like why use lot word when few word do trick. It'll sound like that for mm-hmm. sure. But but the the parts that communicate are still going to be there. And so it wouldn't be fun to read. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying you would probably understand what the author is talking about because it all comes down to subjects and verbs. So with that being said, uh. I guess speaking of control of control of the craft of writing or speaking, we're kind of continuing on in that in that lane. And I do think that for the listeners, even if you're not like a writer, you know, this could be very much like jargony, but I think it actually can apply in a lot of areas of life, especially when there's anything artistic anything create anything where you have a style i think what i'm going to get into is helpful but i guess i'll just get into what we were doing as an exercise which is that we were yeah sorry i feel like i'm giving speaking of the office i feel like i'm doing michael scott's wedding speech where he gives like six introductions (laughs) before actually getting into (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, I I won't do any more of that. But what we were doing as a as an exercise is taking taking portions of writing excerpts from like Virginia Woolf was one. G.K. Chesterton was one. We did it with our own writing and breaking down just sentence by sentence. The type of sentence it was, the length. You know, what kind of verbs is it using? Is it using uh, like active verbs? Is it using passive verbs? Is it using linking verbs? All of these things and more, you know, metaphors, your average, I think I said average sentence length, how many monosyllables you have, all these sorts of things. I won't get into all of that, but the takeaway, here it is. The takeaway is that professional writers and like students like amateurs professionals and students their sentence length is the same average so i you know don't quote me it's either 14 words is the average sentence or 18 words it's one of those but they have the same average so i'll pause there like is that surprising at all i you don't have to give like a long you know reaction well, no, I, I feel I feel like it's surprising. I feel like I would either assume that, you know, the more expert would have more words per sentence or that the non-expert, the student, would have more words in their sentence, either because the one has more to say because they've learned more or the other one uses more words to say the same thing. It's weird that they're 
But they're just the same, though. Well, yeah, no. But you're you're thinking like definitely in the right direction because they have the same average, but the professionals and the students arrive at the average different ways. So if the Hmm. average length is, you know, 14 or 18 words, whichever one it is, an amateur writer is just putting out a bunch of sentences that are that. If the average is 14, then amateur writers are just writing a bunch of 14 word long sentences. Whereas the, the professionals are writing a lot of really long sentences and a lot of really short sentences. And when you do the math, when you find the average, it's the same as the student. But you're arriving at that average in a very different way. And actually, the, the same thing is true of paragraph length, too. So I don't even know what the average paragraph length is. Maybe let's say it's like four sentences. Same thing. If it's four, then students are writing a bunch of paragraphs that are four sentences long, whereas professionals are writing some that are two and three, and then some that are eight, 10, 12. I don't know. But Mm -hmm. when you average it all together, pull it all together, it's the same average. Hmm. So that is like from a writing perspective, what the takeaway is. But when I was saying, I think it can apply more broadly. I think kind of the takeaway is that when it comes to style, I think that, okay, we're getting into my opinions, obviously. Like the basic level of if you're developing a style in anything, whether it be writing or music or art or photography or fashion or anything i think that a more a more beginner concept of that is like you develop your style or you develop your one thing and that's just the one thing i do now because that's my style whereas like you're almost like typecast yes and you're you're kind of maybe you're typecasting yourself or you're like a mm. you're like a one trick pony sort of thing. Mm. And maybe that's varying degrees of intentional or unintentional. Like obviously student writers aren't aren't counting like man, I'm just going to keep doing these 14 14 word long sentences. Nobody's doing that. So it can be in, intentional, it can be unintentional. But there's this idea that like this is the way I do it. And to be me, I need to keep executing on this thing. Whereas I think that developing style and developing control of your craft is where you can incorporate, you incorporate variance and variety in a way that things feel fresh, but that when you average them all together, it feels like you. And I think those are kind of two different things. I, mm. I can think of, you know, this is maybe not the most like artistic example, but there's like one business in my mind in particular that probably like a lot of people know. And whenever I see them on Instagram, every 
every single caption is just the exact same thing. And, and so I don't even stop to read them because that's so that's where you get into the like, if you've seen one, you've seen them all sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then compare that to like, maybe this is a bad, a bad example, because I'm not like a, I'm not like a Marvel fan or familiar with Marvel, but I know enough to know that within those movies, there's a lot of variants. There's the ones that are kind of more funny. There's the ones that are like more serious. I don't know if they have animated ones, but regardless, like it all comes together and Marvel is like a thing. Like they call it the Marvel universe. And there's variety within that as opposed to it's not, it's not just Iron Man over and over and over and over. Does that make any sense? So wait, so essentially you're making the argument that style is like different flavors of ice cream. It's all ice cream. It's all sweet. It's all creamy. But the ingredients add like the variation of style. Well, I guess I'm saying. Hmm. Like. Ice cream might to say ice cream as a category that might be a little broad but if you zoom into like a particular ice cream company they might have their own style and it still feels like them but that doesn't mean that they only have one flavor or this you know another this i'm giving i'm giving very non-stylish examples of style but like chipotle for example if you think about it they have different menu items, but they all feel like Chipotle and they all taste like Chipotle. And it's even mm-hmm. it's even the same ingredients, but they're using them in different ways. I'm trying to back out of this analogy because I don't like Chipotle that much. But you see what I'm saying? It's like if you want to write yeah. if you want to write well. You need you need variation. You don't just. uh you don't just keep doing the same thing over and over and over and you get halfway through the page and the reader is like banging their head against the wall. You want a little Mm -hmm. bit of short. You want a little bit of long where you explain your feelings and what's going on and what the environment is like and yada, yada. And when you read that, even when you just look at the page, like, okay, so, so picture a page in a book readers picture a page in a book. If everything looks the same, even just visually speaking, nothing sticks out. But it it can even work. This is weird to say, but it can even be like a painting where if you if you're looking at a page of a book and all of a sudden there's one really long sentence, that's like a cue to your mind like, oh, something's happening here or the opposite. Hmm. If it's all really long paragraphs. And there's one that's just one sentence and it's only three words, the whole paragraph. Your mind is going like, oh, something's going on there. So I think that's more what I'm saying is like the variation cues your mind to be interested. But yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that example makes me think a great example of this would be like Rob Bell. Like his books feel like him as an author and they also look like him as an author like flipping through the pages the way he lays out his books 
like he does a lot with his word placement and how many words he puts on a page to try to set this like specific style for himself. Yeah, I I haven't I know what you're talking about. I haven't read his books, but I think, yeah, that that's probably a good example. Like. And at the same time. I'm sure that if we dug into it, like within his own style, he probably he probably varies. Mm -hmm. Like as an artist, there there are times when. When you're doing something and you're like, I don't know, is this like, is this too weird? This doesn't really feel like what I normally do. And the way that you answer that question reflects a lot about your your skill. Like, like you're an artist. And so I'm sure that there are times for you where you're like, eh, this isn't really it's like a gut thing. You're like, this isn't really my style. It's too far away. But then there are other times where like, this isn't really my style. But then on like more reflection, you're like, no, actually, I like this. Like, I think this could be my style. It's the difference mm -hmm. between those two things. You need some sense of cohesion so that it is you. Like Rob Bell has a writing style. He has like a, a visual style on the page. But you can't go so far off the wagon that you have no style. There was this restaurant um, in Hartville growing up. And Tim, I know you'll know it because I talk about this restaurant all the time in a negative way. Maybe, maybe other people will too. And if so, it'll be a nice little delight for you. But there's this coffee, coffee shop. If you can even call it, that, oh. I think it's the perfect bad <laughs> example of this. Oh no. I know. Called exactly. Air, called Arabica. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so Arabica Coffee Shop. It's not in Hartville anymore, but I can just remember. I only went in there a couple times, but whenever I was driving by and like looking at their building, they were like covered with signs for all these things that they were offering. Arabica was first and foremost a coffee shop that had this very classic like script writing um style to it like a lot of crimson on like almost like a parchment color they wanted to be like a nice little imagine you're going to like a bistro in europe but it's here in heart like high culture however, yeah yes however what they would advertise for food is at first it'd be like come get a burger we get a burger here at arabica the next week there'd be a sign come get a burger or maybe get like um some Fresh bread. I'm like, okay, the, the bread matches, but the burger doesn't. The next week, come get some fresh bread or get a burger or get lobster. And it's just like, what? The, the more they tried to add this weird variance that didn't, that wasn't at all in their style portfolio, like the less I wanted to ever go in there. Yeah. Like if it, if it, if it just would have been like, hey, come get fresh bread. That's like they are coffee shop. They don't do bread, but bread still is enough in the style that I'm like, oh, that's that's interesting. That variance adds like this cool depth. You've experimented. Now you've made something cool. But I don't know. I don't know if I'm making your analogy clearer or more foggy. No, it is like if you're the coffee shop that also has really good bread, like you said, that's kind of like an interesting like I've never heard of that before. That could be a cool thing. But if you're the coffee shop that does bread 
and lobster and chicken wings, then it's like, wait, 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 what? Like, I that doesn't compute. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So like you have to you have to expand out a little bit from like your style. You can't just do one thing, but also like you said, you you have to have that gut check of knowing when something is outside of your style. Right. And that is not a science. It's not anything like that. It is an art. And that is why that's why artists are artists. But in saying that, I mean, what we were doing in terms of writing is we were literally taking passages, breaking them down word for word, syllable for syllable. We have these. I, I mean, obviously, you can't I can't show it, but we have these charts that were taking us a long time to do like sentence one. What type is it? How many words? How many monosyllables? What verbs? Sentence two. What type is it? How many? So. When I say that it's like a style thing, when I say it's an art thing, that's not to say that you can't really pick it apart and make literal spreadsheets about it. And the process of doing that was very like enlightening for me to get into the weeds. But even then, even when you have the data, there still is a a a gut check to it. One of one of the passages we did was Virginia Woolf, who she's a writer. I mean, a lot of people might be familiar with her. So the whole time I've been down here in uh, I've been in school, I've been kind of getting it drilled into me. Like, don't use passive voice. Don't use it. Like, stay away from it. Oh, yeah. One of my professors told me that for a paper I wrote. And I need to not use passive voice. So I'm yeah, please teach me. Well, so I've been I've been learning not to use passive voice. And I've been learning, you know, that's only one of them. I've been learning other things to not do and other things to avoid. But then we were reading this passage of Virginia Woolf, and she actually had a lot of passive voice. And it was like more than more than the average writer, even. So when you Hmm. see something like that. What you realize is that, you know, the the rules are meant to be broken or that a that a skilled writer can use it, can use anything to their advantage. And I would really have to doubt that she's doing that completely unaware. I would think that at some point there was a decision whether it was for this passage in particular or, or as a whole, she made a decision that that was going to be like, she was going to be able to incorporate it into her style and use it for her. Does that make any sense? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Like prior to this exercise. So yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll say it this way and this is how I'll wrap it up. The the two years I've been down here, like I said, there have been a lot of things I've been learning not to do, like don't use passive voice. Don't use it as the subject of your sentence. All these sorts of things. And what has been happening is as I've been as I've become aware of all of these things that a good writer should be aware of. My my sentences have 
become all the same thing. Because I was avoiding all of these landmines and all of these things I was I was told not to do. And so when I when I analyzed my own, you know, passage of writing, I was like, oh man, I didn't realize mm-hmm. that all of my sentences have become the same thing. And so the takeaway for me was be aware of all of those things. But once you know what they are, you're not doing it unaware. It's actually good to, you know, whatever metaphor you want to use, like muscle confusion or visual interest or whatever. It's actually good to break things up, be consistent, but then break things up so that the mind gets gets hooked back in. So, yeah. Hopefully that's not too... uh, it is about writing, but like I said, I think that a lot of people have stuff where it's like, whatever profession you're in, it's like, I'm going to have my own style, my own way of being successful about this. So hopefully that makes some sense. No, yeah, I, I think it makes sense. And too, even like what the point you made of like simplicity, maybe that's simplicity, but like learning the things you shouldn't do or the things that it might be cliche and you want to avoid but then once you learn that, learning how to reincorporate them in ways that are good. Um, I've, I've been watching a lot of uh, Gordon Ramsay kitchen nightmares. <laughs> and that seems to be the thing he says when he goes to any restaurant is the restaurant's trying to be way too complicated and cook these really complicated dishes. And he's like, hey, you need to go back to cooking like five things really well and not have a menu of like 50 items. And it's these cooks who, you know, some of them really know how to cook. They're experts. If they don't want to cook the cliche, simple things, but they're trying to do too much and avoid the simple cliche things or the things they know they should avoid. And he just takes these cooks like down the street to people. And he's like, Hey, which one of these things do you want to eat? And the people are like, I want to eat the thing that's simple and cliche. And he's like, there you go. So you can make the simple and cliche thing in a way that's now with your education advanced and not just, you know, you cooking like a bachelor. But you have to give people something familiar to grab onto, you know? Right. Yeah. Having having the restraint and having having you know people want so i'll i'll go to like a music example when i was like a angsty middle school hipster musician i knew like you hear the thing where it's like oh man all songs are just like the same three chords over and over and you hear that and you're like oh so that means that i have to go the opposite direction i have to write mm. i have to put notes together that have never been put together but like if i if i write music that is so bad somehow it'll become good because nobody's ever heard it before <laughs> and it's not that i don't know why no one's ever using these chords together <laughs> exactly I'm blazing a new trail yeah it's like nobody there's there's eight notes in a scale and i'm going to use none of them i'm going to go completely and it's like, no, these things are are paths for a reason. But there's a difference, like you said, between how like a bachelor cooks a hot dog. And if you go to some 
fancy restaurant that has like, you know, I've seen that before where it's almost like a gimmick, but it's like, here's our $19 hot dog, but it's actually really good because they have, Mm -hmm. it's not that they've like dreamed up some brand new thing. Nobody's ever heard of before, but they have, they have control of their craft. So. Hmm. We'll end it on we'll end it on hot dogs. Yeah. We'll end it on hot dogs. What a high note, <laughs> man. Uh I love it. So yeah, what have what have you been learning this week? Exam week, you said, right? Yes. So this week was exam week. Um I'm now heading into I think I have like a week of spring break um before my next classes open up, which I think what am I taking? Uh statistics. I think one is like statistics and diagnosis and the other one is maybe like a marriage and family class um so i think both of those will be interesting uh because sometimes you open up like certain sources when you're trying to find like scholarly scholarly sources and man it's like trying to read hieroglyphics you're like what do all these things mean there's like numbers and symbols like I, I've never seen this symbol before. It's like they're using dingbats to try to, to give me information. Um, so I just need to understand that more. Uh, but this week, without having a lot of uh, without having a lot of reading <laughs> to have to do, um, I guess I'll just talk about. There's kind of two things that I've been more thinking about this week, not necessarily learning, but thinking. And one of them came from when I was taking my exam. Um, there was we had to do five, you know, different diagnoses where they're like read a case and using the information, you know, diagnose the case. And there was two of them that were personality disorders, which we talked about, you know, last week. Uh, one of them, I think, was obsessive compulsive disorder and one of them was a uh schizoaffective it it's essentially like a schizophrenic personality disorder um but for the one that was uh schizoaffective which i might be saying that wrong you know this this girl was about 35 um and her that personality disorder, which like with that disorder, she was like hearing voice. Oh, OK, I guess I'll get I'll just give the, the case uh, made up case a girl about five or four months before coming into counseling uh, is riding with her friend in a car, gets into a car accident and her friend who's driving dies. Um, She is going through everything that points to post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, she is like having flashbacks. Uh, she's having dissociative symptoms, nightmares. Um, she's trying to like avoid memories of the accident. Um, but also she starts to then hear these voices. Um, and she hears a lot of them when they're driving, telling her to like go off the road. And she's beginning to feel strong compulsions to listen to them. Um, you know, she's acting on hallucinations at work. And, you know, for schizophrenia and stuff like that, there is a slight biological component. But obviously, in this case, you can see that this this traumatic incident is what triggered this personality disorder. Um, I don't know why I thought that was so interesting. 
I guess it kind of relates to the other thing I was thinking of, which is kind of like the the process of treatment and how like the relationship between you know families and their their family member in pain and also as like a client but the relationship between client and the counselor changes because you have these inciting incidents whether they are more recent or whether they are a long time ago that triggers this dysfunctional thinking um and to pull people out of that, you know, dysfunctional thinking sometimes requires kind of like drastic measures to pull them out of like a tailspin. Um, I don't know if I'm if I'm really making sense at all. Like you, you can't just do a minor course correction um, in order to see like change in these people's lives. Like for this girl who is having these like voices in their in her head telling her that she should drive off the road or that her boss is like working for Satan. And, um, she, you know, she can't go in and just receive, you know, basic talk therapy once a month. Like if, if this girl, if we're going to save her life, both figuratively and like literally, um, what's going to be needed is, is kind of us to have like this scale of treatment we follow. Like there's this graph in a book I was reading that talked about like the scale of recovery starts like first the clients in distress. And then there's this like next level of stability. And then there's this next level of function. And there's the final level of, uh, of like purpose. Essentially what that means is like in the distress phase, the client like is just spinning. Like they see something or they think something and they do something. There's like, there's not, they don't, they don't have that filter. They don't have a process. Um, if you can get them out of the distress phase, there'll be some stability, which means that they are not like in fight or flight mode. They're able to kind of think a little bit and process things, but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to help that person. They're stable, but they're not to the point where they can necessarily plan out things on their own. If you can, help them in that stability phase then they can get to the function phase and in the function phase that's where they're able to plan for themselves they're able to start weighing in on their own treatment they're able to start weighing in on their own schedule and on these sorts of things and finally after all of that they can then arrive in this purpose stage where essentially they're able to now live their life after like having come through this process of recovery um what but along with those four scales of distress, stability, function, and purpose, like the role of how you even treat them as a, as a client or as a family member, like changes, like when they're in the distress stage, you might be like a caregiver, like you're there just to help calm them out of the distress. Like you might not be trying to fix it. You might not be trying to coach them. You might not be trying to like give them a schedule to follow because like they're not, they're in a, I hate to say this, but I don't, I don't know. Maybe I know I've been in stages like this before. Maybe other people have been when you're in this like really distressing stage of life, like you're kind of almost primal, you know, you're, you're not functioning out of the part of your brain that's got levels and logic you're functioning out of like this primal 
one response, like feel and act. And um, yeah. So when somebody is there, are you saying that you kind of meet them, meet them on the level of like care and comfort and feeling more than like, that's probably not the time to like hit somebody up with facts and logic. Right. Correct. Because to them, they're not like, they're literally not in that part of their brain. Like, the part of their brain that's shooting off chemicals is not the logic thinking part of the brain. It's like to use the meme. It's like, it's like their lizard brain. It is. It's the part of the brain that is all about survival um, because they're distressed. They are, you know, they're an animal with their back against the wall. Goblin mode. Like if you, they're goblin. (laughs) (laughs) If you, it's like, if you go to a shelter and you see a dog, it's like backed against the far wall and it's just baring its teeth and growling you're not going to teach that dog to sit mm-hmm. um like you've got you've got to teach that dog and it might be over the course of an hour i doubt it you might get that dog to calm down but like you really need to get that dog to trust you and to trust its surroundings and then once that is done then like the next stage after that caregiver stage is like the manager stage. That's where you're able to start like providing systems and stru- structures and education for that person to follow. And then, you know, from a family setting, then you go to like the next stage would be like a partner. Like now it's not just like, hey, come in and see me and I'll tell you what to do. It's like, hey, how do you think we should address the situation? And the partner stage helps build even their own self-efficacy that they can fix their problems on their own. Like you kind of give them that space to begin to do that. And then, I mean, this wouldn't be a stage for the, for a counselor, but the stage after that is like family. Um, they're able to kind of like live in a community and play a healthy part and be fully, you know, solely reliant on themselves, but also be able to rely on others. There's a lot that goes with that. Yeah. Um, well, but no, sorry. Go ahead. You, you go ahead. I was going to jump in with something different. Well, I was just going to say, and as it relates to how I was looking at some of these cases. So there's that one girl, you know, we were talking about. But there's another, there's a guy who in his mid-20s developed an obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Um, like hyper success driven, can't delegate stuff, like everything needs to be perfect. And his wife was his wife had threatened to divorce him um, if he didn't go and get some sort of therapy. He's now, when he's seeing you, he's in his like mid-30s. And he's developed, he's starting to develop, uh, I diagnosed as a panic disorder um, because he was having these panic attacks arising out of this feeling of like, you know, losing this relationship. which is also just an interesting thing to show that like people with personality disorders aren't like machines. They're not robots. Yeah. Like he was stressed about losing this relationship with his wife to the point where it was causing him, you know, panic attacks. Um, But it's just looking at this process of care. I don't know. It's just really encouraging to see that like, sometimes the first response when you see someone in this distress stage is just to 
help them in that care stage. Now, it's not to say that like as a therapist, if you come to me and you're in distress, I'm just going to like make you feel good. No, there's things I like I need to do as a therapist. I need to do maybe a suicidal evaluation. I might need to do some like um, do some like tests with you to see like what's going on biologically. Is this part of a deeper disorder? Um, you know, there's things I need to do. But like to build the foundation of care, you've got to build that like healthy therapeutic reliance. And that's how, you know, that's how people really begin to, to kind of stand on their own feet to be able to move to the next care cycle. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, it, it Before I spiral into soapboxing, is there anything uh, you'd like to ask or add? Well, it, it reminds me of, when you were setting this up, it instantly reminded me of this book I'm reading and you kind of took it in the exact direction. I was wondering if you were going to go. Cause like in this book, which is obviously, you know, fiction. So grains of salt, but the character, his like childhood best friend is all of a sudden without explanation to him, like extremely depressed as in, not getting out of bed, not showering, not eating depressed for a month, not just like feeling a little oh, low, wow. but like, yeah, that is like really. Yeah. And so what he does in the story is like every day he shows up and just like brings her one thing, like sets one thing on her nightstand, doesn't make her take it or like what he brings her food one day, doesn't make her eat it. And then a, Sometimes, like in the story, he would uh, like stay and do his reading for his homework there. So kind of just like super cliche, but like kind of just being there for her, you know, Mm -hmm. and it was making me wonder about exactly this thing that you brought up, which is like sometimes the the worse, you know, if this is like any reflection of reality, the story, sometimes the worse people are. Or if they cross a certain threshold, what they need is, ironically, not for you to be heavy-handed. And that, like, for a normal person who's not, you know, getting the training that you are, I could see one world where it's like, man, my friend or my child or my loved loved one or whoever, they're getting really bad and I need to, like, clamp down. I need to get through to them. I need to, like, tell them. Mm-hmm. or however you do it but ironically it almost takes me back to the style discussion which is like sometimes when mm. the one thing is the most expected you kind of need to know when to when to f- do the opposite of the average and you know that's like bringing in a uh, very artistic point of view to more of like a scientific discussion, but I do think it relates as like most of us aren't ever going to be trained counselors. And so we aren't, we just aren't going to have like people like me, we aren't going to have the scientific knowledge, but, but human relationships are a bit of an art. And so, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm sort of trailing off here, but it, I do think it's interesting what you're talking about that it kind of relates to uh 
I see a connection to what I was just talking about. Well, yeah. And if I can even connect it back a little bit more, I don't know when this was, but we talked about like the curse of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a couple weeks ago, which, you know, if you didn't know, the curse of knowledge is essentially as soon as you acquire new knowledge, there's a tendency to think that other people understand and know that same thing that you do. So you now, you know, you've leveled your knowledge up to level two. You now start talking at level two, even if other people are still down at level one. Um, And I wonder, you know, all part of human experience is heartbreak and sadness and anger and even like depression to a certain degree. So I wonder if it, if it comes from a good place that like in this example of like this book where you see someone who's like really super depressed where out of your sense of care and maybe even your own sense of like personal experience, you start thinking, I know what helped me. It was these things. I need to start getting this person to do these things. Um, which once again, all comes from a great po- like point, but that's like not treating the the stage of care that that person currently needs. If that person's like majorly depressed, like they're not, it, it might be even more harmful to say, hey, I need you to do all of these things today. Like, hey, it's time to start, you know, getting up out of bed. Let's like, go ahead and like do all these things. Now I'm not saying you you never want to push that person towards doing something, but like to start off their stage of like doing something when they're out of that stage of just distress of like, I'm so depressed. My life is meaningless. Like no one cares for me. I'm just miserable. Like once they're out of that, I I keep going to the illustration in my mind of like a, a dog against the back of the wall once they're out of that primal distress stage, it might be like, okay, hey, just today, I just want you to get up out of bed at some point and go on a walk. And that might be all they do. And that's part of like the, like, you know, you're going from caregiver to manager, but you're still like, you're helping them baby step up. You're not expecting them to take total control, but you're saying, hey, Here's like a next stage uh, is to do this. And then after that, it might be like, hey, like today um, we're going to do that walk again. You know, you want to walk four or five times last week. We're going to keep that walk. We're going to add another thing. And I'm not exactly sure the pacing. Strangely enough, like I've learned a lot in like these counseling classes, but direct treatment methods like one to one. Hey, best methods for treating this. We haven't necessarily gone over yet. so this is more just me kind of pulling from my own experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, like an, an instinct, but, an instinct might be to come in and try to, if you're the other person, you're coming in and trying to like assert control, but mm-hmm. you kind of need like a light touch. Yes. No, a hundred percent. And I think like going back to the curse of knowledge and going back to the style thing, 
like we you know we we hurt for this other person we don't want to we want to get them out of that hurt as quickly as possible like we see them in the shelter their their dog we see that they're hurt we want to get them home we want to get them like out of there as soon as possible but like you can like rush it um and you can like like cause harm or slow healing through like trying to force people through these stages like too soon um and i think that that's just a thing i don't know that even like for me i was not always obvious um but i don't know i I think it's just a really interesting thing to keep in the back of our minds because we're all going to run into people who are in this distress stage like you might even like you might be at work and see somebody who's really in the weeds at work. Um, and maybe the best thing to do for that person, if they are in distress stage, is not like, dude, what are you doing? Go get some more of this. Go get some more of that. Come on, keep it up. Like, it might just be if you can just take a moment to pull them out of distress. Like, and then once they're out, and this is to a smaller scale, if they're just in the weeds at work, you don't have to do like a three week process. But like, just calm them down in that moment. It's to the point where they're like out of their lizard brain. They're they've turned off goblin mode to people who are young and know what these things mean. I'm sorry if I'm using them wrong. Um, but you just you sh- you get them to a moment where they calm down and then they can go from there. Like, I think this is stuff that can be applicable to, you know, to you wherever you are. Um, yeah. Yeah. Last week. I think it was last week with with your part, we were talking about how maybe maybe part of the reason why people self-diagnose themselves so much is because you want the like the factual and like the academic stamp on what you're experiencing like you want to take something that feels very emotional and translate it into the 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 factual the kind of official Mm -hmm. sounding and i think this is kind of the maybe the opposite side of the coin is like if you're the if you're the other person like you're in a relationship with somebody who is you know distressed or whatever the solution isn't to always put on the the gosh i don't know exactly how to say it but like what you're saying is like we are people we are humans we're not just machines and so it's not just like oh well i think that maybe you have blank or you know the textbook says that you need to do one two and three like I think people are used to hearing a lot of that stuff. Like here's the three steps you need to fix your life. But that kind of assumes that we're just machines where if we get the right factual inputs, we'll spit mm-hmm. the right thing out. And I think what you're saying, like obviously this is something that you are devoting your life to is like learning this stuff and learning the knowledge of it. So like the book knowledge is good, but the like book knowledge is not to be mistaken for just creating machines out of people. Like we're really complex. We have kind of like 
animal instincts and what we always need isn't just to hear something that is like factually true because sometimes we're not in the place to hear it yeah no and we need no, time no, to process it right sorry i cut you off no no that was it like it i don't know why it makes me kind of think and i'm sorry i'm ping-ponging all over the place you know there's there's a lot of like ai tools that are being developed for everything right now but like counseling is one of them for like assessment seeing where Mm. people are at and you know i've i've feared before am i going into a field that is going to be irrelevant because people can just plug their information into an ai and the ai will tell them what to do same Um, but this conversation's kind of made me really aware to the fact that like i don't know this primal AI, I don't know, at least not yet, I don't think can understand that primal side of humanity that I think we also need to, like, understand that people experience in order to help, you know, in order to better help them, which is kind of just like I'm stepping off the point that you were just making, too. Um, well, about I've, like, I've. No, I mean, I've thought about the exact same thing. Because like writing, I mean, my gosh, and with music, I think I haven't I haven't gotten on it. I don't know anything about it, but I know Google released a thing that like you type in, you know, make a song that sounds like this and it makes the music. So there is very much like an existential like, you know, our our robots just going to be doing all of this, but. I think that like, man, how do I say? So like, I don't want to say it's not a problem. Everything's just going to be fine. I think that there are like economic implications because this technology is going to rearrange like whole industries. I think there are, I think it'll, it'll make us deal with a lot of questions, but at the same time, just thinking for me personally, I know that a lot of my favorite music is not the most, uh, it's not always the most eloquent. It's not always the most skilled. It's especially not always the most perfect, but there's something, there's like a human element that shines through. And so, yeah, there's a, I guess, there with AI and with technology, like there are a lot of things that it can mess up, but I also think that it is, you know, like you were saying, there's a human element that can't be exactly replicated and can't be replaced. I'm sure this technology is really going to like shake things up and have a lot of ramifications, but I also don't think it replaces like people at the core level. I don't really know what I'm saying. <laughs> no, it, it's I don't know. It, it's it's the weirdness of us of us trying to grasp onto the primal and define and define it. Um, which is yeah. difficult. Yeah, I mean, what is like a soul? I'm pretty sure, like mm-hmm. scientifically, that's the one thing, like. Not necessarily the brain, but like the mind and the soul, if I'm understanding correctly, is like we still just don't really know. 
it's kind of like, ah, eh, you know, we'll figure it out at some point uh, if I'm correct about that. And so, yeah, it mm-hmm. is like we we kind of hang our our weight on a lot of these things that might be taken away from us. So, it, yeah, it might be very like it might create turbulent times, but I think at like the deepest level, maybe it makes us face face those questions and find the answers. Question mark. Hmm. I don't really know. No. Yeah. I want to keep talking about it, but I think that that's a good spot to end the episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're we're very much going like an hour and five in. We're like, let's talk about what is humanity? What does it mean to be human? <laughs> and that is the episode. Thanks again for listening. Hope you guys enjoyed it. We'll see you guys on the next one.